0: Things are about to get a little more gruesome in Akewillow. You have been warned. Akewillow Chapter 4 Open for Business Sort of. How exactly did I think all of this was going to go down? I think that, in my naive and innocent way, I assumed I could somehow waltz into Aquilo in the morning and be out of there with the deed in my hand, ready to sell the café before the sun went down. It's not quite clear if I was simply intoxicated by the notion of wiping the counter of my life clean of misfortune, or if I didn't have the wherewithal to understand the scale of what I was attempting to do but by the time night's fingers have closed on the town of Aquilo, I've hardly begun to unravel the knot of legal and administrative demands necessary to stake my claim on the Aquilo café. Helen Edna, notary public, still has to verify my identity, but she was satisfied enough to hand over the keys to the property and leave me alone to explore it and even stay the night had I wished to. Despite a voice as official as an avatar of legal red tape giving me a provisional nod of approval, it's the words of another Aquilo resident that cements reality in my mind. Olivia Figg seems convinced that I am, indeed, Doris Dufour's relative. What branch of the complex Dufour family tree we each occupy might be a little more complicated to unravel, but there's something in Olivia's way of spotting resemblances, even some I disagree with, that rings true. I'm still mulling these things over long after we pass the sign that announces her home. Fig's Orchard. A large and dimly lit painted wooden sign calls out. Apples, she says, turning her little blue car into the driveway. Lots of people ask, but the answer is just apples. I'm sorry? The trip from the cafe and out of Aquila proper has taken less than ten minutes at a very leisurely pace. Olivia is a quiet and careful driver, never going above 40 kilometers an hour, and slowing down to half that whenever we saw any signs for deer, moose, or raccoon crossing. They see the sign, and they ask if we grow figs, but all we've got are Granny Smith, Lobos, and McIntosh. We had pears a few seasons, but they were too expensive to grow. Besides, we just need them for the cider. I want to pay better attention to what she's saying. The woman is, after all, showing me incredible hospitality. After the noises we heard in the cafe and her talk of demons, I sure as hell didn't want to spend the night alone in the apartment on the second floor. says a lot that I feel more comfortable crashing at a complete stranger's place in an orchard in the middle of nowhere. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I feel like maybe that's not the best decision, either. It's a modest little home where the Figs live—a two-story colonial building with a wraparound porch that sits in the shadow of an enormous barn. The words, Figs Orchard, can barely be made out, their white paint on the side of the barn swallowed by the hungry night. This is Henry, Olivia whispers as we pass through the living room. The place is as cozy and quaint on the inside as it is on the outside. Knitted blankets crowd every piece of furniture, and a luxurious and intricate quilt covers the back of an old couch. On an adjacent armchair, one so old it looks almost like the cushions are melting onto its frame, lies what I suppose is Henry. For a moment, I worry that he might drown in his own saliva. It trickles out of his gaping mouth, the flickering light of the muted television glistening on his wet lips. I give him a timid wave that he can't see unsure what else I'm supposed to do. At least it draws an amused grin out of Olivia. Let me show you to the guest room. To her credit, Olivia has an honest-to-God guest room. I know it's a guest room because it smells musty and unused. The bed is small and creaky. In fact, the floors are creaky, too. And so is the door, The whole room groans and complains, bothered at being drafted into service after too long a time of neglect. I sit on the bed, holding the towel and bathrobe Olivia gave me before leaving me to get sleep. It feels too early for bed. Did I really spend an entire day in Aquilo already? The only answer I get are from the stiff springs as I settle onto the mattress. In turn, my stomach, empty and neglected gurgles, loud and angry. I realize that, in all the excitement, I forgot to even eat. Not since sharing breakfast with Gulliver, anyways. For a moment, I contemplate getting up and bothering Olivia for something to fill my gut. I don't need much, a slice of bread or a piece of cheese, anything to quiet my stomach until I can get a real meal in me. I bet she has apples. After a few minutes, I relent. I can't see myself abusing this poor woman's hospitality any further. I can go hungry for a night. Still fully clothed, I lie down on the dusty covers. There's a cozy familiarity to this kind of bed and this kind of room. I remember when I was a kid, my parents would leave me at my grandmother's and I would get my mom's old room. It too is mostly neglected. The furniture dusted once a month and the sheets only changed after each infrequent use. I wonder if this bed used to be Olivia's daughter's, or maybe her son's. The decor's so generic, it's hard to imagine who might have lived here. There are no posters on the wall, no knick-knacks taking up space on the dresser. Even the drawers, who also creak when opened, reveal nothing about the room's original occupant. Sleep is elusive. The hunger and unfamiliar walls are only part of it. I just can't bring myself to close my eyes or even turn off the old struggling lamp that was a demon. Olivia had said those words with such nonchalance. I've had customers order pumpkin spice lattes with more emotion than she had talking about a demon. Demons aren't real, and when I pressed her on the matter, Olivia waved my concerns away. Small towns are home to all sorts of things. Don't you read the papers where you come from? It's the digital age, so no, I don't, but I knew what she was referring to. Someone was killing women in Aquilo, and I guess that made them a demon in the eyes of the locals. Who am I to tell them otherwise? Thoughts of starvation, demons, serial killers, and dead bodies accompanied me on the road to slumber, but somehow I managed to get there. The first sign I survived the night is the smell of overcooked bacon. I'm not judging. Overcooked bacon is the best kind of bacon, if you ask me. A growl, deep and furious, rumbles from my belly. The sound is so loud it startles me the rest of the way to wakefulness. I take a moment to remember where I am and refamiliarize myself with the unfamiliar. Thankfully, the bright morning sun burns away the dread of the night. I take myself downstairs. The creaking of the steps seems quaint and welcoming in daylight, where they were foreboding at night. I try to remember the events at the Aquilo Cafe that drove me to accept a stranger's invitation, and they seem so much less threatening in hindsight. Some homeless guy trying to scare us or a drunkard passing out in the alley. Instead of terrifying nails on a chalkboard, what I hear is the complaints of a belly-aching husband. I don't know who you're trying to impress, but I'm not putting that in my mouth. I try to anticipate what the voice is complaining about. The smell of slightly burnt meat and melted butter is overpowering. I think I can detect the telltale aroma of eggs, but I can't be sure. I smell apples. It's a hollandaise, and there's no reason why you shouldn't enjoy it. Olivia's voice is almost motherly, strained, but patient. You've had hollandaise before, she continues. I most certainly have not. The back and forth would probably have lasted for a while, but I interrupt them by poking my head through the kitchen door. Hank, hush your mouth, Olivia scolds her husband. Like the house, Henry looks a lot better in the daylight than he did the previous night. While I'm wearing the wrinkled clothes I slept in, and Olivia's wrapped in a thick baby blue terry cloth robe, he's already clad in his work clothes. Denim jeans that look two sizes too small in his wiry frame, and a washed-out red-striped cotton shirt. He's a handsome man, probably in his fifties, with deeply etched wrinkles on dark skin. His hair, raven-black tight curls for the most part, is flecked with a peppering of gray. His brown eyes are pools of kindness framed by annoyance. Their kitchen fits the rest of the house like a glove, except that it's bigger than I anticipated. It's a large room with country decor that favors ivory and olive greens. An island counter dominates the middle of the room, lined with stools on one side and a deep sink on the other. Floor-to-ceiling glass cabinets flank another countertop and the stove area opposite the island. It's not what I would have chosen myself, but I wouldn't say no to throwing together a meal in a kitchen like this. I like my workplace a little more efficient and streamlined, but the fig's kitchen is the cooking equivalent of the big armchair Henry was sleeping in the previous night. It's built for decadent comfort above everything else. Well, good morning there, Olivia greets me, her smile as radiant as the sun shining through the windows. Care for some eggs, Benedict? Probably a demon. The words stick to me like peanut butter on the roof of my mouth. I want to forget them, to let them slide out of my mind and into the past so I can move on to other things. Today's going to be demanding. With any luck, Helen Edna will have good news about waiving the provisions in Doris's will and I'll be able to go about the business of finding a real estate agent. It's all paperwork, numbers, and legal garbage. The faster I'm through it all, the better. Olivia is gracious enough to take me back into town. The drive-in is as leisurely as the drive-out, but this time I get a better appreciation for the area. Approaching from the farms, the city is so much clearer on the horizon. Like the prongs on a cocktail fork, the spires of the church stick out of the skyline and towards a clear blue sky. The only thing that mars the azure expanse is a singular white cloud that still hovers like a ball of cotton candy. The rooftops of buildings rise above the rows of corn and wheat as we make our way between them. They vary in design and color. Some are painted bright red, while others are the dull, sun-bleached gray of asphalt shingles. I bet Olivia could name every building from this vantage just from their roofs. See the low, pale green slopes over there? She says, interrupting my thoughts. That's the Aquilo. The tree? I ask, immediately realizing it's not at all what she meant. No, not the tree. The cafe. Doris's cafe. Your cafe. Besides, she insists with an added tone of mischief, there's no such thing as an aquilow tree. She parks a block down from my destination in almost the same spot she had the previous night. The streets are much like they were the previous afternoon, active in that busy but not crowded way that only small towns seem to manage. Walking down the street, my bag over my shoulder, and a crate of figs-orchard apples in my hands, Henry insisted. I'm relieved to see that there's no huge truck casting a shadow over my cafe. I mean, over the Akewillow Cafe. There is, however, a bit of a crowd. And an ambulance. And a car from the provincial police. I hang on to the futile hope that this has nothing to do with the noises we heard last night for as long as I can. The crowd is being kept at bay by an officer and the bright warning of yellow tape blocking part of the café storefront and part of the alley. No one pays any attention to me as I weave through the curious onlookers, going around the blockage and awkwardly fishing through my pockets for keys. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what's going on. I don't care what the murmurs and whispers about dead bodies and missing organs try to tell me. I just want to get inside and call Helen Edna. This is Aquilo's problem, not mine. Apple crate under one arm, my bag over my shoulder, and the ornate key in my hand, I open the door to the Aquilo cafe. The tinkle of welcoming chimes cuts through the crisp air, spreading cracks through the hushed conversation on the street. There's a subtle trick to searing meat properly. When you put the meat in a hot pan, it sizzles, but at some point, the sizzle changes. It's a very small difference in intensity, but if you pay attention, you can hear it go from an aggressive hiss to a liquid purr. That's when you know to flip the meat. Something similar happens to the crowd assembled on Rue Principale as they hear the chimes gentle ringing. Their apprehensive murmurs turn to something else. Whispers of murders and suspects and investigations melt into something with more excitement, hunger, and thirst. The crowd flips. Their attention is no longer on the alley and whatever lies beyond the yellow tape. They're all now turning towards the café. Towards me. I close the door and make a point of locking it. I only switch on the lights near the kitchen and the counter, leaving the rest of the dining area dark. Still, the crowd forms an orderly line in front of the cafe, spilling into the street where yellow tape prevents them from staying on the sidewalk. This is your fault, I tell the coffee machine. Even though I've yet to figure out how to make the contraption brew a decent cup of joe, I still blame the thing. Why else would these people be so eager to get in here? Don't listen to what the commercials tell you. Coffee is the ultimate aphrodisiac. I set the apples next to the register and my bag on one of the stools. The shadow of a tree with branches on one side and spirals on the other covers the tables near the window. The Aquilo Cafe's logo, stenciled on the glass and projected on their surface. The commotion at the front of the cafe settles a little, the people in line getting comfortable with the wait until I open my doors to them. Little do they know, I have no intention of doing anything of the sort. It does allow me to notice, for the first time, the commotion at the back, in the alley. There's no avoiding it now. Whatever drew the crowd, the ambulance, and the police happened right behind the Aquilo, and it happened last night. Reluctant, then careful, and finally curious, I make my way to the back door. As I put my hand on the handle and twist the lock open, I catch myself hoping that all I'll find are those stupid raccoons. I can't imagine what they'd be doing that would make so much noise and cast adult-sized shadows in the windows, but anything is better than what I'm sure I'll find instead. Whoa! One voice exclaims as I twist the door on its hinges. Hey, didn't anyone secure that? Another follows, angrier. Ma'am, a third, closer and calmer, interrupts you can't be here. The man, clad in a raincoat over a business suit, flashes a badge and gently pushes me back inside. He makes an effort to twist me around by pulling my right shoulder with his free hand. He isn't brusque or violent, but there's something he doesn't want me to see. But I do. Probably a demon. Definitely a demon, I think. Maybe not one drawn from the bowels of hell itself. Certainly not a creature of cloven hooves and leathered wings, but what I see behind the cafe could not have been done by anything less than a demon, even if it's a very human one. Sitting with her back to the dumpster, I saw a woman. If the officer in the raincoat had been faster, maybe I'd have thought the woman to be asleep or unconscious. Her chin was resting on her chest and her arms were lying next to her, limp and lifeless. If that was all I saw... Everything would be fine. But that wasn't all. Back when I was a teen, soon after deciding that my life's path would be that of a chef, I got it in my mind to work at a butcher. As far as first jobs went, it wasn't bad. The pay was decent as a 16 year old could expect to get, and the hours were great. My plan was, in my adolescent wisdom, to learn about meat. I figured it would be a great primer to cooking if I knew where my ingredients came from. In theory, that wasn't a bad plan. And I did learn a lot in the two months I was there. But on the first day, I almost turned in my apron and quit on the spot. My boss, some guy named Tremblay, thought it would be wise to give me a firm baptism by fire. His approach probably isn't wrong. If the girl he employs is going to turn green every time a carcass comes in, she's probably not going to be very useful to him. So, on my first day, my very first task was to assist in butchering a pig. Now, the animal had been slaughtered and bled already, so I guess it could have been worse. But I love animals. And if you think for a minute that dressing one for food is anything like the delicate clinical care of the autopsies shown on television, you're sorely mistaken. Butchering is as brutal and messy as the name implies. It favors speed and efficiency, not protecting the sensibilities of 16-year-old Miriam Dufour. By far the worst part was removing the viscera. Tremblay had been explaining each cut and describing every part of what he was doing, but his voice vanished when he started pulling stomach and intestines out of the animal. He was drowned out by the drumbeat thumping of my heart and the soft moan in the back of my throat. I thought I'd toughened up since then, and maybe I have, but I wasn't prepared for that woman in the back alley behind the aquilo. Like the pig, she too was missing her guts and... Just like the pig, she seemed to have also been bled. Except there was no pool of crimson gore around her, and I could see straight through the gaping hole in her abdomen to her spine. The internet didn't have much to say about the murder victims in Aquilo, and I think I know why now. The police probably want to keep this thing as quiet as possible and avoid panic. Who wants to be the first to admit there's a demon in town? Coffee? The man in the raincoat is looking at me. Like Olivia's husband, he has kind eyes set in hard features. His skin is pale like that of someone who doesn't see much sun, and his hair is black, messy, and greasy. There's a bit of something wise and something crazy in his blue eyes. Yeah, I answer, after a moment to collapse onto a stool. I could use a cup. I meant for me and the boys, but yeah, you look like you need it too. There's a spark of indignation in my heart. This random guy thinks I'm just going to get ordered around and make coffee like some sort of housemaid? It's a short-lived flame, though. He looks like he's been up all night, and I have no reason to think he hasn't. Blue eyes follow me as I slide off the stool and walk around the counter to face my old enemy. Don't mess with me now, I murmur to the coffee machine. Hmm? Raincoat Man asks. Nothing. I don't have a traditional coffee machine. or I haven't found one yet. Just this thing. I rinse out a cup and put some grounds in the ancient device. There's a hiss of protest and steam, but otherwise I get cooperation and manage to conjure an Americano. Detective Aaron Wilson, Raincoat Man says as I slide the cup over to him. Keep the change. He slides back a pair of wrinkled American dollars. I take them, mechanically, not sure what I'm supposed to do with them. The register is just as old and overwhelming as the coffee machine, and it takes me a while to figure out how to even get it open. The drawer pushes out, accompanied by the sound of a bell and the rattle of coins. Bills are arrayed in neat piles and separated between American and Canadian denominations. How did Doris manage to keep all of this straight and make coffee and cakes for these people? Gonna want to get that thing figured out quickly. Customers are getting impatient. Detective Wilson isn't wrong. Faces are pressed up against the glass, and some people in line are even waving dollar bills to highlight their intention. I don't get it. Aren't there other coffee shops in Akewillow? The steampunk monstrosity doesn't even brew that good a cup. So what's with the fanatical fervor? For a moment, I think that maybe Doris was some sort of pastry wizard, but there's clearly nothing in the display. So what do these people want? The question doesn't stop me. Like an automaton, I walk into the kitchen and look for some more cups or mugs. I find a whole tray, along with all the plates, bowls, and utensils I might need, stashed next to the dishwasher, behind a towering stack of boxes that Gulliver delivered over the previous weeks. Still under the spell of trauma, busying myself to avoid thinking of the body in the back of the cafe, I take down the chairs from each table and switch on the dining room lights. There's a voice in the back of my head that warns me against opening a business I'm not really sure I own and that I don't have any intention of keeping, but like the spark of indignation, it's snuffed out almost immediately. I do all this under the quiet, watchful eye of Detective Wilson. When I steal a glance in his direction, he nods in approval. Go on, he seems to say without a word. I realize that he's doing this on purpose— Keep the civilian occupied and out of his people's hair, or give the girl some busy work so she doesn't fall apart after what she's seen. It's working so well that I don't even think of calling him out on it. In time, I manage to gather my wits again, but not before I have a coffee shop full of customers on my hands. Not only that, but I'm looking out into the dining room, my hands covered in flour while kneading dough. There's a bowl filled with sliced apples from the crate Henry Figg gave me, bags of sugar and cinnamon on the counter. It figures. Even in a daze, if left alone in a kitchen long enough, I'd start cooking. I don't have much at hand so I'm improvising, but it looks like I've got apple strudels going and I'm readying a batch of coffee cake muffins. The contented buzz interrupted by door chimes and the smell of rich coffee have replaced the foreboding quiet and musty aroma of dust. Like a necromancer, I've brought the Aquilo back to life, but much like some dark sorceress, I'm not sure it's something I should have done. The people of Aquilo seem glad for it, though. I'm somewhat aware that the police and other professionals are still at work behind the cafe. Aaron Wilson has disappeared and left one of his officers to guard the back door. Red lights serve as a reminder that EMTs and a coroner are still examining a murder scene just a few meters from where I am basting bread with an egg wash. The unwelcome image of the body paints itself under the back of my eyelids, and I teeter on the verge of falling back into a fugue. My hand holding the brush shakes so much that I spill egg all over the countertop. I hear the bell next to the register ring, announcing a customer that needs my attention. And I have never been so happy to go make coffee. Anything to banish the image of a woman without a lower abdomen from my mind. Emerging from the kitchen, wiping my fingers with a dish towel to hide my trembling, I'm greeted by the sight of not one, but two customers. They're a strange pair. A short but smiling man with a balding head and round face accompanied by a tall, athletic woman with Caribbean-kissed skin and beautiful cornrow hair. Each is wearing an identical suit that could pass for business wear if taken individually. Seen together like that, they look more like they're part of a cult. Hello, the diminutive man says, smiling with tiny but perfect teeth. Uh, hi. What can I get you? I can't decide if I'm amused by these two or worried. In a way, they seem to have the same flavor of weird that the rest of Aquilo is seasoned with, but there's something else about them. Like, they're also… from outside. Tea for me. Green, says the woman, with none of the warmth of her partner. I'll have an espresso, the short man says. Also we'll have… this. Short man points at my display still anemic, only a few hastily baked cookies take up a single row. Basic chocolate chip that I barely remember scraping together an hour earlier. I ring them up, and while Shorty pulls out his wallet, I grab a cookie and slip it into a small paper bag with a tree printed on it. It hits me why I fell into doing this as a means to escape thinking about the corpse. Between cooking and serving food and drinks, I find all the ingredients for comfort and security. It's familiar and simple and easy and safe. I know how to do these things with my eyes closed. The cooking fills my heart so I don't have to feel for that poor dead girl. It's the tall woman who takes the cookie, and I spot crucifix-shaped cufflinks on her sleeves as she takes the treat from my fingers. Without so much as a thank you, I might add. So, they are from a cult, I suppose. Just a much bigger one than those people in white robes, I guess. Thankfully, the coffee machine maintains our current truce and doesn't fight me too hard to get an espresso made. I wonder for a moment if perhaps I've tamed the beast, but I'm instantly punished for my hubris by a scalding rogue jet of steam from the monster. And that's when I spot them doing it. As I'm waiting for water to boil so I can give the rooter of the pair her tea, I notice them slipping the cookie I just sold them into a plastic bag. The kind you use for lunch sandwiches. Or for evidence. I want to have some sort of reaction, but I don't even know where to begin. It's their cookie now, I guess. They paid for it. they plan on eating it later? Are they investigating me? For what? A way to ask them what they're doing is still taking shape in my head as I hand them their drinks. Again, no sign of gratitude. Plus, they pay me with an odd mix of Canadian and American money that I now have to sort out and make sure I give the correct change. By the time I've got it figured out, they're gone anyways, having wandered to one of the tables in the dining area. the hell do they think they are? I ask aloud. I don't expect an answer. I don't expect anyone heard me, in fact. But there's a familiar shuffle of a raincoat and the pulling of a stool from just across the pastry display. Them? They're the Inquisition. Or at least that's what their business cards say. Detective Wilson, I... Why is it so hard to say these things? I want to thank you. For what? He shakes an empty cup, the same one I gave him earlier after he urged me to make him and his people coffee. I take it from him and raise it to my face. For this, for urging me to do something and not think about what I saw. Again, I get no trouble from the coffee machine. Our truce seems to have been re established, though I give the steamer a wide berth. I just wanted coffee, Miss. Oh, I'm sorry, I never introduced myself. My name is Miriam Dufour. I guess you could say I inherited the place. Ah, I thought I saw a familiarity. Welcome to Aquilo. Oh, I say handing him his cup filled anew. I don't intend on staying, just settling the estate. Can I ask you a question? He reaches for his pocket, intent on paying me for the drink, but I wave my hand at him, telling him that, at least for now, his money's no good here. Only if I get to ask you one myself, Miss Dufour. I'm not sure if we're flirting. I don't think so, but then again, I've always been terrible at this sort of thing. We sure are being playful and obtuse about asking questions for casual conversation, if that's what this is. Absolutely. What do you mean by the Inquisition? Like, the Spanish Inquisition? Detective Wilson takes a thoughtful sip of his coffee, careful not to burn his tongue, but also apparently so he can put together his thoughts. I've never checked with the Catholic Church or asked them any questions about it, but that's how they introduced themselves to me when I got transferred here. I don't see them at church on Sunday, and I don't know that there's still such a thing as an Inquisition, but that's what they say they are. The worst thing they do is hover around crime scenes, but otherwise they never cause any trouble. I think they're just eccentric. This entire town is eccentric. A quick glance over the half-full dining area of the Aquilo serves as a solid reminder of that. Now, if you'd be so kind, Miss Dufour, my question? I nod, still unsure where this is going. Where were you last night? AQUILO is written by J.F. Dubot, narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred podcast platform. You have no idea how much it helps. Questions? Comments? Email us at akewillow at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username Aquilo.